Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is Shockton Nagelga, or it was Vishay Shockton Nagelga and Shockton Derenok, Shawnee Connesty. Talk him all. Tell me him all. August Connesty talk to. Tell me Gahanawar fat. Tell me Gahanawar fat. Let's talk about the right wing. Not least because the right wing tend to say that they're the real Irish people. Yeah. They're more Irish than the rest of us. <laughs> yeah. But I want to talk today, I want to talk to you about the right wing today. And I want to go to Kevin Cunningham. You know, Kev, our man who's always looking at numbers Kev or whatever. Is great. Yeah. And thinks it's about great politics. For crunching numbers. Thinks about politics in a different way. And he's got a really fascinating and I think very germane take on the right wing and the rise of the right in Europe, in Ireland, and why? And looking at it from a different angle. And he's uh, in a new gaff in Stony Batter. Oh, Stony Batter. Lovely Stony. spot. Well, it's funny we talk about, we're going to be talking about immigration, the right wing in Stony Batter. Well, in Ireland. Mm. But it's interesting about Stony Batter. Do you know about the names of streets in Stony Batter, John? Go on, tell us. Fascinating, right? <laughs> yeah. Main, main artery in Stony Batter, or one of the main ones, it's called Oxmanstown Road. And sounds very unusual, right? Very yeah. un-Irish. And the reason it's called Oxmanstown is because in the Vikings, right, the Viking world was split between Westmen and Oxmen. So men from the West and men from the East, right? West so, of what? So that, that this is the interesting thing. It's west of Norway, right? So the Norwegians, the Scandinavians, the original Vikings were the Eastmen. They were men from the East. Right. And the Westmen were men from the West. And they were Irish and Scottish, mainly, the Viking colonies of Ireland and mm. Scotland. And of course, the place where the Vikings, the actual Norwegians and Danes to a certain degree, but not many of them, many Norwegians, lived in every Viking colony was called Oxmanstown. The right. place where the Eastmen lived. So there's lived. loads of Oxmans towns. All over the place, right? All over the place, okay. right. Okay. So there were the Osmen, the Oxmen, the Osmen lived there. And Stony Batter was the original Viking enclave in the bigger Viking colony that was Dublin. Because Dublin was a slave trading outpost. Yeah. Yeah. So the Vikings came here not to rape and pillage. And remember when we learned, you know, they, they were after the monk's gold. They weren't after monk's gold. They were after people. Yeah. Ireland was a slave outpost. And amazingly, you can find Irish genetics in Constantinople, 
in the Caspian Sea in burial grounds. And the question is, how did people get there? So the Vikings picked up the slaves, Irish slaves. Children and women mainly. Right. That's what they wanted. And they picked them up and they went through the extraordinary Viking trading network. Yeah. Which went up to Scandinavia, in to Russia, across Russia to the top of the Volga River and the Dnieper River, and then down those rivers to the Black Sea and the Caspian yeah. Sea. And they were slaves. So they were incredible people, weren't they? For the Vikings. A- a- adventurers and explorers. Unbelievable and amazing traders. So we mm. always think the Vikings are this barbaric, you know, coming up with their long ships and all this. They were that too, but they were also unbelievable traders. Now, the interesting thing about Oxford. With bad haircuts. Very bad haircuts. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> kind of mullety sort of jobs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like the mullet. But the other thing is, you might be noticing in Iceland, there is a volcano at the moment. Right? Yes, there Erupt, is, yeah. Right? And the most famous volcano, volcanic eruption in Iceland was in 1975 in a place called the Westman Islands. Now. Right. And the Westman Islands are islands off the coast of southern Iceland. And why were they called Westman? Because they were slave holding islands. So the slaves would come from Ireland. They'd go east to the Baltics, but also west to Iceland. Right. And of course, you have to keep the slaves somewhere. So where you keep slaves are on islands they can't get off, Mm. like slave trading. Mm, Yeah. And the Westman Islands were full of Irish slaves, which is why one third of Icelandic people have Irish genes. Right. Because Irish female slaves were what was exported from here. Are the Westman Islands still inhabited now? Still inhabited, and they're called the Westman Islands, so they're full of people from the West. Right. So the Oxmen were Oxman Town Road East Vikings, the Westman, and another interesting little piece of trivia. Go on. (laughs) Is the name Cormac. Cormac, the Irish name, is very popular in Iceland. It's the only non-Scandinavian name in Iceland. It's incredibly popular. Why? Because the Irish slave women named their children after their brothers and fathers in a longing memory for the people that they'd been ripped away from in Dublin as the Viking trade outpost. Wow. Interesting stuff That's a nice one. There you go. You'd... So Kev has moved in. Kevin will move into the slave trading <laughs> entrepot. And the other, there's another great, beside Oxmantown Road, is a road called Palatine Road. Yeah. And the Palatines were a Protestant sect that were kicked out. Remember we talked about Gutenberg, right? Yeah. Palatine yeah. <laughs> was a Protestant area that converted in the Thirty Years' War to Lutherism. But they lost the Thirty Years' War and they were kicked out, the Palatine Germans. And they came here and a huge, huge subsect of the Irish, the Protestant population in the Republic of Ireland Mm. are not Anglos, are not Presbyterians, they're Palatine Germans. And they constitute a massive part of the original population. Yeah. And they were refugees. And so you see particularly farmland all around Limerick, farmland all around Tipperary are Palatine Germans who spoke German in the 18th century here. And of course, up in... uh, they're immortalized up in Stony Batter in Palatine Road, which is where they first came. So what happens, they would have come into Dublin. Right. They would have gone to this area of Dublin that was associated with immigration. And you'd go there, you'd start there. So, so, so of, when did the Palatines arrive then? They arrived in the 17th century. After so, the, uh, so basically after the 30 Years' War. So right. late 17th century, what you have is, you know, William of Orange. Ah, this is an interesting stuff. Go William on. of Orange's army yeah. were a refugee army and a mercenary army. 
Because, of course, Holland, if you think of it, Holland was such a small country. It didn't have the manpower to occupy yep. countries. Yep. So they raised money and they paid them. And the Palatine Germans came around the same time of William of Orange's army. And they were refugees from Germany. And they're called Palatine because it's a Palatine Platz is a, a German area. Mm. Now, of course, what do they do? They took land off poor Al Paddy, who was sitting there innocently thinking, what the hell's Coming going on? Coming a shafter from yeah, all angles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So place names and street names. Yeah, tell so much about... There's so much captured in yeah, there. There's yeah. so much captured, so much history. And the Oxmanstown and the Westman Islands, it's our Viking heritage, man. Fantastic. Loving it, Mac. There you go. You've been in the library again. Ah, always in the library. Sure, the lockdown <laughs> is all about library. Let's go to Oxmanstown Road. Talk to Kevin. We want to talk about the right wing, trends in the right wing, what they are, looking at politics a different way, and then what we can do about this because it's a European-wide trend. Kev, how are you? How's Stony Banner, your new abode, I hear? The Stony Banner is great. It's I'm actually renting part of that, you know, generation that's renting long into their 30s now at this stage. But yeah, no, it's good. Well, it's I, good. It's, I, it's incredible. In actual fact, stay with the podcast because we are going to be talking, after we talk to Kevin, about the plight of renters and home purchasers, particularly in your 30s. But I want to talk to you about something we saw last week, the sort of the, the anti-vax far-right melange that we see on the streets. And I want to talk about something you've written about the rise of the far-right. And what's interesting, you say, yeah. there is a trend, Ireland is not immune to it, but you also look, and this is what I find really intriguing, at voting patterns, not just on economics or demographics or, or, or education, but on the psychology of the individual and the moral outlook of the individual. So I want to talk to you about those. But first, tell me about the far right in Europe, the trends, and why you think we're not immune to it. Yeah. So, I mean, the rise of the far right, it's it's a 40-year trend, right? So we've, we've a lot of discussion around disinformation, which is a relatively new sort of thing. But actually, if you look at the trend in changing voting behavior across Europe, you're looking at the far right improving on average by about 1% every five years. And it's a really steady trend. You know, if you go okay. back to 2002, you had Jean-Marie Le Pen getting 17%, kind of those shock election results like Pim Fortune, this kind of Dutch guy who, who ended up getting assassinated at the time, also getting around 17%. You have these kind of big election results, but broadly speaking, there's this, this slow sort of trend where uh, for decades, basically, in almost every country, we were dominated by centre-left and centre-right parties in industrialised economies, you know, where working-class voters very much aligned with their chief economic interests and also kind of, you know, the trade unions and the other membership organisations people were part of. But as those sorts of things declined, as economies, you know, as, as you'll know, became more diverse, those sorts of tribes lost their stickiness. Yeah. And what happened was partisan loyalties with their turnout declined and new generations in these class groups started to vote differently. And we end up with these very different political systems where, you know, we have these kind of far-right and radical right parties uh, increasing support quite steadily. And, I mean, we know we've seen this all over Europe, but a lot of Irish people, and for, for non-Irish listeners, we've had pretty much an absence of a far-right, particularly in the elected sphere here, whereas most of our neighbours have had, as you say, a progressive but kind of relentless rise in the far right. What's your take on here? Well, my, my, my take on Ireland is, broadly speaking, up until now, 
you know, the, the far right haven't been quite prominent. In the most recent general election, the parties that represented the far right did, did relatively poorly. But, you know, our system is relatively quite open. It is true that we have an open political system. And to some extent, our electoral system, the fact that we kind of, you know, the whole thing where people talk about party pump politics and always oh, in a terrible that our politicians are so localized. In some sense, that's actually kind of helped us because it's meant that we've had that closer connection to political parties and political politicians. We, like we have a much higher percentage of people actually having met the person that we vote for. And that has kind of helped, I think, a connection between people with politics over time. But that's not going to prevent it in the long run. I mean, broadly speaking, as political parties are changing, you do have this rise of the far right in terms of the political system changing quite significantly. But like, look, when you look at the supporters of the far right, the interesting thing I find about politics is when you're trying to figure out why, why do certain people believe this funny combination of different policies? So when you look at the far right voters, they're very much motivated by an opposition to immigration. Okay, that yeah. seems to be the, the most dominant consistent theme. They also oppose EU membership and, you know, LGBT rights quite frequently. Today, a lot of them are least likely to wear, say, a mask or also the least likely to take a vaccine. So the whole thing is like, why are these people, you know, voting the same way? Why are these people coming together? And that's where, you know, the psychological component comes in. Like, it's worth bearing in mind that a lot of the left-wing parties have tended to try to focus on, well, these people are generally quite disadvantaged. And so we've tried to, you know, focus on appealing to them on economic grounds, but that hasn't worked because for these people, it isn't the economy stupid, let's say, as the, as the James Carver phrase in terms of for these people it's it's the cultural issues that are really important and there's been lots of kind of underlying factors that have shown to to relate to support for the far right like authoritarianism nationalism that sort of stuff uh, one really interesting trend in it is that a sense of societal pessimism and nostalgia is is quite prominent among people who are more likely to support the far right and that's sort of reflected in those campaigns you remember the uk and the us where they had take back control and make America great again, and those sorts of things, which kind of try to bring back uh, the past, basically, and bring that towards the present. And that's the sort of thing that seems to appeal to these What what I've always thought, in Ireland, the past was so utterly shite that nobody says, you know, (laughs) let's go back to the Irish 1950s. Bring back the Christian brothers. (laughs) (laughs) Bring back the Christian brothers and the nuns. And do you remember the charismatic movement from the early 80s, the happy yeah, clappers? Yeah. Bring them all back. No, but I mean, but I can understand, like, so for America and Britain and, all, and France, you have this halcyon age, late 1950s, where they're still in empire, where white Americans are doing extremely well. Certainly black Americans weren't doing particularly well in the late 1950s, but that isn't part of the narrative in the United States in terms of let's go back. Ireland doesn't have this, but what, what, what we do have, obviously, is nationalism. Interestingly, yeah. what you said is that psychology of the individuals, you went through five almost character traits, personality traits, and you yeah. and explain that to me. So the right wing tend to be from a different personality trait. Yeah, there's, there's, there's two really good ways. And, like, and I say really good because I, I, I've done a little bit of work in other European countries on testing the relationship between psychological traits and, and, and voting behavior. And there's two things that kind of work quite well. There's one is called the Big Five, and the other is called Jonathan Haidt's Moral Foundations. And they, they really consistently work. And it, it's really, really interesting. You can see the exact same things here. Um, so in terms of the Big Five, that's sometimes called the ocean characteristic. So it's, it's a model based, based on the idea that 
back in the day, people were asked to describe, it's a piece of research from the 1960s. People were asked to describe various people and they noticed that there are patterns that people are described as messy were very rarely described as always prepared. And from those sorts of patterns, they identified five personality traits that basically they associated with personality disorders, success in exams, success in relationships and politics. So these kind of traits seem to be consistent. So give me the traits, give me the traits. Yeah, so I mean, the, there's uh, openness. Okay, so openness is the idea that you're creative, intellectually curious. And um, there's conscientiousness, so that's being organized, diligent. Then there's extroversion, so that's like, you know, when you talk to people, do you get more energy or, or less energy? Uh, there's agreeableness, which kind of stands for itself, like would you, you're agreeable to, or tend to agree with people. And then neuroticism, which is just this idea of people who are tend to be more anxious about things, I guess. Yeah, John, um, is, John is not agreeable. He's neurotic. Uh, he's definitely not open and conscientious, not at all. He's okay. clearly. Okay, so tell Okay, Mac, we can start uh, to... Poor John's got a uh, good end to my Well, then you can answer, Mac. <laughs> so go on, tell me. So tell me about the... So, yeah, so the, I mean, the, the interesting thing is it's consistently shown to be related to political behaviour. People who are open, you know, this intellectually curious, but like open to new experiences really tend towards the left. And you can see that in Ireland, people before profit supporters, Greens, Social Democrats, all have much higher scores for that. And okay. lower scores for conscientiousness, which is this organized diligent thing, which Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael is much higher to be. People who support all, other parties in Ireland are more likely to be basically with those right-wing traits, basically low openness, high conscientiousness. But they're also likely to be disagreeable which is also true of the other voters in Ireland. So the support for the radical right sort of reflects that, that kind of combination. Now, the big five is good. It kind of tends to go a certain way, but the, the moral foundations one is way better predictor. Um, Great. Now tell me about that one. Tell me about that one. The old guy, the moral foundations is the new kid on the block. That's, that's, that's a little bit better. So, so they looked at evolution and they found that there are moral codes in different cultures, so very different cultures and communities tended to have similar sets of moral codes. And the assumption is that those moral codes were formed through evolution. Okay. And from that theory, we get to this intuitive sets of moral foundations. So there's five of these, okay? And well, actually, there's five and they added a sixth on because of libertarianism. That doesn't quite fit into the Irish psyche or the Irish political culture, perhaps it will in the future. But the, the main five are care and fairness loyalty, authority, and purity. So the idea is that the first two, which are basically whether people prioritize leaders who are caring for the vulnerable and treating everyone fairly, are more likely to be the things that people on the left focus on. So they're the things that focus on individualized concerns. Yes, yes. The latter ones are basically, this, this idea is that, okay, so left-wing people focus on the kind of the individual concerns and, and those individual people. And the, the right perspective is the idea, well, they condition that on the community. And the three others, the loyalty to the people of, you know, loyalty to the Irish above, you know, those other two features. Yeah, loyalty or, to tribe or something. Yeah, yeah. And uh, authority, that's the idea of avoiding chaos um, and making sure that the, to maintain order within the kind of community. And then purity is the idea of kind of opposing things that are kind of disgusting, I guess. And it kind of relates to the idea of punishing bad behavior as well. Yes. So those second three are much more likely to be prominent among um, people on the right. And it is true again today in Ireland. The latter three 
people who have higher figures for the for the latter three of parity purity, those kind of community things, are more likely to vote with the right. And and the the far right are even more so, right? In that they basically really don't care about the care or fairness thing at all, you know. And some of that comes from this idea, and you've seen it in other literature about this idea of social dominance orientation and right-wing authoritarianism and hierarchicalism. And it's just the idea that people who want to preference the community over and above any consideration really for the individual, I guess, you know, yeah. um, in, in a funny way, you know, in a kind of like the social dominance orientation is this idea of a preference for hierarchy. So just one example of this is when you come to uh, refugees. So, you know, those on the left will focus on caring for the vulnerable and fairness and that sort of stuff. Those on the right will think about, okay, well, we need to have an ordered system in doing it. And those on the far right will believe, why should we be doing anything at all for refugees? Because they are lower maybe on some sort of hierarchy that they have, which is where obviously this kind of far-right racism and, and white nationalism. Finally, Kevin, do you think the far-right here is a coming force that... We may have avoided this for quite some time, maybe the last 20, 30 years, not least because we were sorting out other issues, I suspect. But now, do you think that this is the coming force? Yes, it is. It's funny, like almost what, 10 years ago and a bit, my, I started my PhD on this topic, in fact, and it was, it was all about like anti-immigration politics. And I, I always wondered, why, why like, is anti-immigration such a big thing? And it was because of this far thing, because those two things are so intrinsically connected, right? Um, for most countries, the question isn't about avoiding the far right, but actually what to do with them when they're here and how to depoliticize uh, immigration when it emerges as an issue. I don't know if you remember, but in 2015, the Labour Party under Ed Miliband, you know, kind of a, a cosmopolitan, you know, leader, uh, and erected this large granite stone in the middle of the 2015 campaign to emphasize his assertion like carved in that stone was the idea that the Labour Party was going to control immigration right and and the reason why the party did that although this is despite myself because I was, I was really trying to convince people not to do this but um this was because of this idea that the general public don't quite trust the, the politicians on this issues on this issue and it ends up in the situation where political parties even among the left are trying more to do more and more sort of anti-immigrant policies to try to appeal and try to remove that kind of immigration feature from their politics and remove immigration as a policy. So it's called the adoption strategy, which is a lot of politicians have looked into and tried to use to basically depoliticize the issue. And there's there's numerous examples of, of it actually working and then numerous counter examples where it's failed to do that. Basically in Austria and Switzerland, it didn't, they, they tried to adopt the policies but it didn't work. Currently in Denmark, you have the prime minister of Denmark talking about, you know, ensuring that certain certain parts of Denmark have a limit on how many people based are, are allowed to live in certain areas based on their ethnicity. And that's the Labour Party of Denmark, you know. Wow. So, wow, wow, wow. yeah, you end up in this situation where these parties are doubling over themselves to, to try to depoliticize immigration in particular. So in Ireland, like, and, and this is part of sort of what I was doing many years ago, you know, in 2004, Michael McDool was introducing an immigration act. And immigration was a salient issue in the early 2000s. And his assertion was that if, and he, this is his quote, I guess, it was, he was basically saying, if we had not enacted this legislation, the opportunity for right-wing racism to enter politics would have been enormous. And he's talking about how, you know, our system was open to that. 
So it was clearly motivating political parties even in Ireland back then. Although, you know, at the end of the day, to what extent are you going to uh, throw away what you believe in just for the sake of accommodating, you know, these extremes to try to bring them into the system? In conclusion, Kevin? Well, in conclusion, I guess the way I see it is that there's three different types of voters here, right? There's, there's the people who like the present, who think the present is great, uh, and they tend to vote for the government or centre-right parties or whatever. Uh, there's people who think the future could be great. They tend to be on the left. And then there's people who think the past was, was great, you know, and they're the far right, basically. You know, so if you're going to if you're going to break it up into three blocks, I think that's the best way of thinking about it sometimes. Because exactly as I said, that, you know, there is this anxiety about what the present is. There's an inf- the problem with the far right is also that for the left, these people may be economically disadvantaged in many cases. But... That is not their priority. For, for not, not for everyone is the economy the most important issue. It may be the most important issue for most people, but not for everyone. Right? And so there's going to be a subset of the population for which it's not the biggest issue. And those that are, you know, otherwise inclined towards the right in terms of their psychological makeup, they're going to vote that way so long as there, there isn't anything like, you know, the trade unions and those members, which kind of glue the working class sure. together, oh, absolutely. which is what it previously did, I guess. But I, I like yeah. that way. So you've got the people who are involved in the present, the people who are optimistic about the future, and the people who are nostalgic for the past. And that's quite a good way to look at it. Yeah. That is excellent. I, I love this stuff. I love this stuff about the evolutionary approach. But listen, Kev, thank you so much as always, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Thanks a million, Dave. Thanks. Life is full of what-ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. So, John, are you a, a person who lives in the past, the present, or the future? Who the fuck wants to live in the past of Ireland? I know, but you see, there are people who do because they have this, you know, nostalgia plays tricks on us. You know the way your memory plays tricks on us? I know, but how far do you go back? But of course you go back because nostalgia is the foundational starting point of mythology. 
if you think about, even you and I remember when we were kids, I yeah. remember things that you don't remember and vice versa. Yeah. Even though we were both there at the same time, but we selectively memorize what we want to. Yeah. And now imagine that on a national scale and imagine that the foundational myths of a country and imagine that we're going back to all sorts of, we're dredging like the Gaelic League, we're dredging history for a narrative for the country. It's all based on nostalgia. And nostalgia is a terrifying, terrifying foundational point for politics because nostalgia is by very nature ephemeral. It's invented. Yes. So you have your own nostalgia. I have my own nostalgia. And I think the far right in Ireland are trying to construct this nostalgic view here, completely at odds with what we know about, for example, poverty, unemployment. Church and state. Church and state, yeah. the industrial schools, emigration, all these things. They're saying, park that and we'll wrap ourselves in the flag and we'll invent a story. And so, the, I, uh, so and, and that is obviously yeah. attractive for some people. And I think it's interesting the way we remember stuff as well. You talked about memory there and the way time gets compressed in memories. Time speeds up the older you get. Tell me about it. <laughs> what year are we, man? But actually, one of the things that I, I thought was very interesting what he, what he talked about is the disagreeableness of some people. Well, and I wouldn't call a running battle with the cops a bit of disagreeableness no, uh, on, on Grafton Street, you know? It was a bit more than that. No, it was a bit more than that. But what is interesting, economics for so long was prepared to accept the burden to explain everything. This is why I think one of the problem with economics is that economists said, we can explain monetary policy. We can explain fiscal policy. We can explain society. We can explain politics. We are going to funnel you all in to this slightly, uh, you know, I blame Marx, actually, although I quite like Marx, right? I'd actually yeah. love to have gone the lash with Marx. Marx is great crack. Was he? Oh, great was crack. He, oh, yeah, yeah. drinker, was there's he? A, there's an amazing book, Francis Ween's biography of Karl Marx. Right. He was a hoot, an absolute laugh, right? But again, Marx funneled everything into capital versus labour, left versus right, worker versus capitalist narrative. Yeah. But what you see now, and, and that carried us for 100 years. It was oversimplified. Or 150 years, yeah. Mm. And then when you see is when societies begin to atrophy, there's another good book by a guy called David Putnam, an American sociologist stroke economist called Bowling Not Alone. Not the filmmaker. Not the filmmaker, who is a genius, by the way, mm. who was at Dorky last year talking yes, about he education. Was. He was brilliant. A, a wonderful man. Wonderful, wonderful man. But in actual fact, he sent me a book. And the book was about an advisor to Churchill whose name escapes me. And mm -hmm. Churchill had one advisor who always stood up to him. Churchill couldn't stand him. Right. He was an admiral. And I'll come back to it anyway. But the other Putnam wrote this book called Bowling Alone. And what it was about, which is what Kevin was talking about, is when societies begin to atrophy and when community begins to become disemboweled, people then search for other ways to express themselves. Now, Bowling Alone was about the collapse in the phenomenon of communal bowling in the United States. You know, like right, the, okay. Right, so Americans used to bowl in groups. You'd have a bowling club yeah. and you'd all meet on a Tuesday night and you'd go bowling. And that was a big thing in the United States. And what he was saying is that the extraordinary disappearance in these bowling clubs has led to people bowling alone. And that was a euphemism for an atomized, individualized society. So you contrast that with here, where I know your family are really involved in the GAA. That's mm. a big communal event where yeah. 
brings people together. Like my Alfala was the manager of Doak United, which is why I was made the captain. Excited <laughs> <laughs> dealing. Excited friend. We were the Davies of Irish schoolboy football, okay? But you know what I mean? Like my like dad, dad, that was he was doing his community thing, you know, yeah. involved. So all that sort of stuff. When that disappears and it's clubs or it's trade unions or, or, or whatever it happens to be, your identity is subsumed to a greater identity. But when you stop that, you no longer then say, well, I'm part of that gang, right? And then what happens is you begin to look at the world in a different way. And what Kevin's saying is once societies move away from the community to the individual, you've got to look at politics in a different way. You've got to look at people's motivations and incentives in a different way. And that's why he's saying, look at the evolutionary side. So in, in that kind of collective memory, was society an awful lot more simplistic? Simple, well, basically, I think it was more totemic in those days, that there were totems, like I'm on the left, or I'm a conservative, right. or I'm a religious person. Were you forced into those ways of thinking as opposed to, you know, you pick your side, right yeah. or left, you know? Kilmacud, Krogs, or Olafs, or who are Olafs? <laughs> oh, they're just another. They sound very Viking. Olafs, yeah, it's they're up in Sandyford, yeah, a GAA club, a GAA club. Yeah. Listen, you're going to have to talk. By the way, if you're listening from outside of Ireland, the GAA is our national sport. We'll explain it all to you at some other stage. But it's big, it's too complicated. It's to very big. It's very very big. But the idea here is that look at the evolutionary traits in all of us, and those will give you a much better indication of how somebody votes. Mm. So what Kevin was saying is that from evolution, it's called the moral foundation approach to politics. We have traits like caring, mm. fairness, but we also have traits like loyalty, authority, and purity. Now, imagine you're back in the cave, right? Mm. So you're part of the hunter-gatherers. Right? Not, not my man cave. Not man. your man cave, but a cave, right? You're yeah. actually, you're in the cave, right? Up in the Wicklow Mountains. Yeah. 7,000 right. years I'm ago. there, I'm there, I'm there. Okay. I've you're, got a fire going you've here. You've got a fire going, you've got it all going on. Yeah, you're listening to the... Drinking mead. The, the Stone Age equivalent of Bob Dylan or whatever. Anyway, right. But you think about how... No, he was around the Stone Age. He was. <laughs> he was, but how does the tribe stay together? So there are cooperative instincts and competitive instincts and then tribal instincts. So you have caring, right? Humans are... Very unusual in this in the caring, in that we care for vulnerable. Other animals do not care for their vulnerable. When other animals get old, they don't naturally care for that person in mm. the tribe for whatever reason. We also have a sense of fairness. So humans again have a sense of fairness. Re reciprocity is a huge human emotion. This great thing is I think lots of things can be explained by I'll scratch your back. If sure, you scratch yeah, mine, yeah, that's a, yeah. a human reciprocity. Right? That's deep in us, right? But again, we've got things like loyalty to the tribe, right? That there's a tribal idea. We've things like authority, like for the hunter-gatherer system to work, there had to be authority. Somebody had to be some sort of boss. Mm. And of course, then you have purity. These ideas that the tribe has to signify something. It is, it is this family. And deep inside us, all these characteristics are either elevated or subjugated. And we default to somebody who believes more in authority or more in purity mm. or more in control or we believe more in caring and more in fairness. And all these things are evolutionary traits deep inside us. And what Kevin is saying 
is that when you take off the lid of easy solutions, like I'm left or I'm right, or I'm pro-high tax or pro-low tax or whatever, these evolutionary traits are much more indicative of the way we will vote. So people who are naturally pro-authority will vote naturally for the right. People who are naturally pro-fairness and concerned about the welfare of others will naturally vote for the left. Now, he's done, amazingly, all the data on this for Ireland. But, but and the, it's really accurate. But but these characteristics have always been there. Yes. They're, they're innate human characteristics. Yes. So why is this changing now, this evolution that you're talking about? Because the way in which we did politics for the last 100 years was based on a very strong sense of state, identity, community, and picking your side, which was largely a function of where you were to start with economically and where you ended up economically, Mm. which is why I think it was Churchill said, you know, if you're not a socialist at 20, you've no heart. And if you're still a socialist at 40, you've no brain, right? But what he was saying is that's your evolution, which I think is probably quite wrong. Clearly he was the leader of the Conservative Party. Of course, yeah, yeah. But what Kevin is saying is that the easy default position of left or right has been changed by the fact we come back to our friend Schumpeter, right? Mm. That the economy is evolving, the society is evolving, it's adapting all the time. And these new Schumpterian moments, the internet, the collapse of the Berlin Wall, the inequality we see in society, all these things are forcing people to take different sides. So if you are, for example, feel that in the old days, if you were like, if you were saying, I'm on the under the average wage. Mm. Your default position was normally, I'm going to vote for the left-wing party because the left-wing party is going to look after me. Yeah, yeah, that's there. And now your default position might say, I'm on the average wage because my society doesn't look nostalgically like the society it used to be. And you know whose fault it is? It's that immigrant's fault over there. Mm. So I'm going to vote for the purity side or for the authority side or for those things. And that's the change. So once you get large-scale immigration, for example, once you get the internet, for example, once you get the atomization yeah. of community-based culture, what you get is people default to either blaming others for their position or, even more interestingly, for suggesting that they themselves are uniquely responsible for their end game, which is back to our friend Sandel's idea of the meritocracy. If you get to the top yeah. as a meritocrat, it's very easy to say, well, it's all, you know, forget that community stuff. Mm. It's all my genius, right? So this is what's happening. And it's like all these things. You get these moments of enormous change. Like I've been reading quite a bit, John, about the fin de siècle, the last part of the 19th century and the early modernization. What did you call it? Fin de siècle. It's the French idea at the end of the end of the century. Right. So this is a, this is a, a French idea in, in literature, in art, in psychology, in economics, whatever. Mm, mm. And one of the biggest books in the late 19th century, right, was called Endism by a guy called Max Norda. And basically what happened he's is... a positive kind of guy. Yeah, he's, yeah you're, <laughs> gonna, you're gonna hang out with him and McKenna's, right? But his idea was that we're coming to the end. Why? Because the last decade or two of the 19th century, it's electricity, it's railroads, yeah, it's yeah. cars, it's bicycles, a huge revolution. Everything is up in the air. Everything's up in the air. It's Marxism, it's class conflict, it's revolution, all these things. And suddenly, a bit like now, everything's thrown up in the air 
and you get reactions which are really unusual. So, for example, you have Freud saying, well, I can explain it all from dreams. Or you have Picasso saying, I can explain it all from modern. Or you have Joyce yeah. saying, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take the English language, turn it on its head, and create a modernist classic, the centenary of which is next year, 1922, the centenary of Ulysses. All this stuff right. going on. All this stuff going on. And we're back in that sort of moment now. And we're seeing it in politics. Yeah, but let me just take you back there, just a, a spin back a few minutes. Yeah. That you used the phrase "we're forced into picking different sides." Yeah, I just kind of wonder about the phrase "forced," because if things like the internet, for instance, maybe it allows people to pick other sides. Oh yeah, that, no, that, no, you're that, right. You're that right. Suits Sorry. them an yeah, awful lot better. You're absolutely right. Yeah, and 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 it's also it's what I was thinking there is that you know. You know, take small town Ireland or something like, or a small town anywhere. You know, you're stuck in a small community that there probably aren't loads of outlets for your particular set of interests. That the internet... uh, John, don't really expose your internet interests no, I'm not live going on to. podcasts. <laughs> you know, I you're, looking, my history. <laughs> you're looking for an outlet for your own sort of interests. No, but say, let's say something like, uh, I don't know, beekeepers or whatever. You know, the internet has allowed them to join and form a new community yep. of beekeepers that could be spread out throughout the world or whatever, you know, model plane makers or whatever, you know. You are really picking and very, then it goes very to, benign. Yeah, yeah, I don't know where they're very going. Very benign. But then from political perspective, I mean, this is what the likes of Steve Bannon is tapping into, is like-minded people yeah. and then just amplifying that. Well, the, through, the internet is, well the, the internet is lots and lots of things, but what it is is an unbelievable platform for influencing people. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And what it also is is a rather cosmopolitan platform. So it kind of divorces people. So you can live in your beekeeping world, okay? <laughs> your little Avery, isn't that the name? Avarian, what's it called? No, that's uh, words. A, it's A-something. Apiarist. I knew it was, it was something like that. But I, I mean, the internet and cosmopolitan networks are not going to replace the urgency of local needs. So I think you're absolutely right. And obviously what the internet does is it totally disrupts politics. Because in the old days, the political classes spoke to the journalistic classes. Mm. The journalistic classes, through the platform of the newspaper, carried the message of the political classes. They mediated it. Yeah. They were the gatekeepers. And they kind of anointed what was right and wrong. Yes. The internet disrupts all that. Yeah. So you can find whatever the hell you and like. Become, becoming even more so. And well. then you can find, I'm not alone. There's this dude and this exactly. girl and this exactly. girl. So what we're talking about, and that's to come back to the idea of the late 19th century, we're talking about a massive disruption in the status quo. And what tends to happen then is the cars get thrown up in the air and we see how they land. And what Kevin's saying is they land in very unusual political places. But what determines where they land, despite us talking about modernity, is deeply evolutionary and comes from tens of thousands of years ago, which I think is fascinating. So so Kev was talking about the rise of, of the right, and you've been talking about this kind of big change that happened in the turn of the, of the last century. Yeah, big into, disruptions, big technological yeah. disruptions. So 
what did all that lead to? What was well, the outcome of well, all that? This is, this is the fascinating thing, right? So all these big technological disruptions, and again, in the beginning of the 20th century, end of the 19th century, it was things like electricity and rail travel and all these things, right? Huge, huge disruptions. Mm. The most popular, two most popular books written in Europe, in Europe, were German books, because the Germans were miles ahead. We forget that Germany was the center of European philosophy sure. and ideas, whatever. The first one I talked about, Max Nordau, it was actually called Degeneration, but his notion was endism. Right. So it's about the degeneration of humanity mm. in the face of all this technological change. And he would say that society is becoming degenerate. And he regarded Joyce and Picasso and Freud and all these people as degenerates, right? People right. to be avoided. Because then, they were different. Because they were different, but more importantly, because he saw modernism as undermining community, what the Germans called okay. blood and soil nationalism. Right. That we are from blood and soil. This is us. And he's followed up by a guy called Oswald Spengler, another great book called The End of the West. Huge bestseller. 1918. Right. Again, we don't know it because we don't speak German. So these are these are classics in the German canon. Yeah. And of course, Spengler's idea at the end of the West was based exactly on degeneration. Exactly the idea that the West is a degenerate construct. This is to your Steve Bannon pointer, okay? Yeah. A degenerate construct of effete, sexually liberated, intellectually liberated. There's no core. There's no home, right? Now, of course, who's reading all this stuff is Adolf Hitler. Right? Oh, Adolf right. Hitler is in Vienna, which is, Vienna is the center of European thought. Now you go to Vienna and you have a coffee at St. Stephen's Kirche, and we don't realize that this was the epicenter of all mm. intellectual You were thought. saying before that, weren't they all, there was a bunch of them that all lived on the same street. Oh, that's even better. Yeah. yeah I tell you what, Hitler, Stalin, and Tito lived on the same Tito, street yeah. in 1913 in Vienna. <laughs> but Hitler's sitting there. And he's absorbing all these ideas, these ideas of blood and soil nationalism, Nietzsche's idea of race, mm. of purity. And over time, he takes all these various disparate ideas, but they're all focused on the fact that the Western intellectual liberal centrist status quo is a degeneration, is a betrayal right. of the real person, the real stout German, honest conservative, somebody who believes in nostalgia. Because yeah. the Nazis were full of nostalgic. They thought they were coming from the Vikings, all this bonkersness. Yeah, yeah. But this unemployed artist who is painting street paintings, like the fellas in Marion Square mm. of a Sunday, right? Adolf Hitler, angry, dispossessed, disenfranchised, an outsider, absorbs all this stuff and then realize that his moment is coming, that he thinks he's thinking this alone, and then realize, no, lots of other Germans are thinking this. Lots of other Austrians are thinking this. And out of that tiny movement, right? Imagine the Nazis got 2% of the vote in 1928. Yeah. By 1933, they were fully in power. So they went from 2% to absolute power in four years, right? The end of 1928, to the beginning of 1933. Yeah, it's quite a jump, isn't it? But the philosophy they came from was precisely the same philosophy that we're hearing now. Nationalism, nostalgia, us versus them, immigrants, the outsider, the degenerate state, the purity of the nation, all that stuff. So it's dangerous. And we've got to be aware of our history in order to fight the battles of the future.
So how do we fight this battle then? Well, do we stand up to it or do we absorb it or do we diffuse it? I think the 1929, 30, 1931 approach on the streets of Berlin was conflict. Mm. And that the communists would... The assumption, I think, of the Weimar Republic was that the communists would beat up the Nazis on the street and that the Nazis could be always and everywhere co-opted into the mainstream. So you've got to be careful. You've got to be incredibly careful. And like, I, you know, I come back and I don't compare Brexit to Nazism at all, right? Right. But it's the evolution of an idea interests me. Jimmy Goldsmith... In 1996, 1997, in the election in Fulham, where you were living, Mm -hmm. ran on a Brexit anti-European withdrawal from the EU platform. And having spent tens of thousands of pounds, got a couple of hundred votes. That same platform got 17 and a half million votes 18 years later, the Brexit vote. Yeah, yeah. So these ideas gain currency, they gain momentum. And suddenly they become majority. So that I think you've got to be careful of. How do we address this rising populism? What are the practical things we well, can do? Well, I think that's, again, you know, a critical question is what can you do now? And what you can do now is, again, land, housing. If we don't sort out housing, if we don't fix the housing market and bring down the cost of housing, Of course, people are going to legitimately say, well, you know what? The reason house prices are up is all those immigrants, right? You kick them out, we'll be fine. So you can't give these movements an absolutely legitimate open goal. So it seems to me the centre in Ireland and everywhere in Europe, not just Ireland, Mm. needs to fix housing. We're talking about planning and lifestyle, but ultimately, John, we're also talking about politics. Now, why I have you there again. Why not use the time when you're locked up to learn economics? Join me on Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Let's learn economics together. We have the economics course. Macroeconomics has never been as essential to understand. We have the Ask Mac tutorials every other week. We have Q&A. We've got the reading list. And more importantly, you become part of the community. If you have a question, if you have something that's going on, you want to ask me, join me on Patreon. Email in. I will answer your question. But more importantly, it's ad-free. Just you and me and your man across the way. Hey. Patreon.com forward slash Dave McWilliams. And let's figure out the world together. Thank you.